Turn our attention to the preaching of God's word. And so we return to our study in John 19. Join me there, John chapter 19. We are, we are coming to the conclusion, John's conclusion of this passage of Christ's cross. We've been looking at verses 16 through 30, John 19 verses 16 through 30. And yet we come to verse 30 for this morning. One passage, we will unpack this together. Let's read it. John 19, 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Up to this point, we have looked at the cross from a variety of angles. We have seen the physical pain of Christ's death, what was wrapped up The torment in verse 17, they crucified him. We have seen the emotional shame of Christ's death as Christ was led naked through the streets and even here he hangs naked on the cross. We have seen the divine design of Christ's death as nothing happens outside of God's sovereign decree. Even the evil that falls upon Jesus on this day, in this hour, all of it is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. All of it is the perfect working out of God's sovereign plan. We have also seen the sinlessness of Christ's death as Jesus dies as the spotless lamb. He fulfills every act of righteousness necessary for us to be declared righteous and accepted by God. He did what the first Adam failed to do. He lived in perfect obedience to his father's will until his last breath. To what we looked at last week and the divine wrath of Christ's death as the father descends upon his son in anger. The father throwing his son into the outer darkness of his fury, fury against sin, pictured by the darkness that falls upon the land from noon until 3 p.m. We looked at that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To how we ended last week in the voluntary conclusion of Christ's death. When Jesus, on his terms, on his terms, he gives up his spirit. We saw that in verse 30, he bows his head and gives up his spirit. John makes clear no one took Jesus's life. The cross is Christ's choice. Christ laid down his life. And he does it not a moment earlier And he needs to, only after he completes every act of righteousness offered to the Father, after he fulfills every prophecy written by the Spirit, after he drinks the full cup of God's wrath required to save sinners. This is his choice, his timing. And thus, it's no wonder that the cross is the event, the event that all human history has pointed to. Think back of Genesis 3. When you have a promise of a seed who would come and crush the serpent on the head, that's the cross. All human history is pointing to that event. It's no wonder that the cross is the event that all eternity will, that will look back upon. To 
think of the Revelation 5 scene. Given a glimpse into heaven, the throne room of God, and we see the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They fell down before the lamb and just note that title, lamb. It is the most used title to describe Jesus throughout the book of Revelation, the book of glory of Christ is a book about the lamb, what he accomplished. Christ is worshiped as the slain yet resurrected lamb. Verse nine, we see the angels singing a new song saying, worthy are you, supernatural praise, worthy are you. Why? For you were slain. It's because of the cross. Heavenly worship is cross-centered worship. Worthy are you, you are slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Then I looked, John says, and I heard the voice of many angels and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So grasp the scene now. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Even the angels remember the cross. To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why? Because of the cross, the sacrifice offered. That is why Christ will sit on a glorious throne to rule and reign. And then the image is every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, the Father, and to the Lamb, the slain yet resurrected Lamb. The Lamb is worthy of the same worship as the Father. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Verse 14, the four living creatures kept saying, amen, amen, I agree. Yes, we agree. We affirm this. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So even heaven looks back on the cross and they do so in wonder and worship and praise. So it brings us to a why question for this morning leading into verse 30, a why question. Why is the cross so essential? Why does Genesis 3 point towards it? Why does heaven look back on it? Bring it to you and me. Why is our boast only to be in the cross? Why is our worship driven by the cross? Think of the songs that we've just sung leading up to this. Why is our assurance and peace and joy all based upon the death of Jesus? Why? Why do the gospels reach their apex at the cross? Why is the cross so essential? Well, look at verse 30. The answer is found in those three words in the English, it is finished. That's why. It is finished, one, work in, one word in the Greek, tetelestai, mission accomplished. It's a final word that means that Jesus has fulfilled the purpose of his coming. Think back of John 4. My food, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, same word, to finish his work, the work of redemption. Here in verse 30, Jesus says that work is done. 
This phrase, it is finished, means that Jesus has consummated his promise back in John 13. He promises, I will love my people until the end to the max greatest degree that has taken place. John 17, four, Jesus prays to accomplish, to finish the saving task. Well, remember the prayer when Christ commits himself to accomplish the work of salvation, which you have given me to do here, Jesus says that prayer is answered. It's done. Matthew and Mark add that Jesus cried, it is finished. He cries this out with a loud voice. Everyone can hear it. This is a trumpet blast of victory. But if you are looking on, it looks like utter defeat. It is finished as Jesus' triumphant declaration, and even though he seems to die as a total failure. When you look at this phrase, it is finished, understand this is a part of Psalm 22. Remember that psalm, it traces Christ's death. Jesus points us to Psalm 22 and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus knew why he was forsaken. That's not a question being asked. It's meant to point us back to the prophecy that Psalm 22, one. It's a prophecy that chronicles the details of Jesus's cross. But now listen to how Psalm 22 ends. Here's the conclusion. They, all those who have benefited from the forsaken one's death, the saved, they will come and will declare his righteousness. And notice what this declaration, this testimony of Christ, what this entails for us. This is us. We're declaring his righteousness. What do we declare? Here it is, that he has performed it. You can translate it. He has finished it. That's how the psalm ends. That's how Christ's cross ends. It is finished. Mission accomplished. It's a cry of victory. And it becomes the foundation of our testimony of the gospel. What Christ was sent to accomplish, he did, and he knows it. This is why Jesus uses the perfect tense of the verb, it is finished. It means that this is a once for all completion, once for all. No other sacrifice will be needed. No other death will be required. No other payment needs to be made on behalf of those who come to him in saving faith. One commentator summarizes Jesus' words, it is finished with this. He writes, the full measure of the Father's wrath has been poured out. The cup has been drained to the dregs. The penalty for sin has been paid. The substitute has taken the place of his people. Atonement has been made for everyone of their innumerable transgressions. The stains have been made clean. The Father's wrath propitiated. The law's demand fulfilled. The pains of the people taken. Guilt forgiven. Old made new. Salvation accomplished. 
love demonstrated, truth upheld, mercy lavished, brokenness healed, evil unplugged, Satan defeated, the promise of life made. That is what Jesus means by it is finished. And so right there is what I want to focus on for this morning. Here's the angle to now look at Christ's cross through. Angle number seven, the saving accomplishments of Christ's death. The saving accomplishments of Christ's death. And we have noted these for the last few weeks. We're going to bring them all together this morning. And notice five of them, five of these saving accomplishments all wrapped up in that victory cry, it is finished. Notice accomplishment number one. Accomplishment number one, Jesus accomplished penal substitution. Penal substitution. Penal means punishment. Substitution refers to standing in the place of someone else. Understand, this is the heart of the cross. Every blessing flows from this accomplishment, penal substitution. When Christ hung on the cross, he endured divine penal punishment. He did not die as a mere example of love. He died as a sacrifice. He died and was inflicted with punishment in full for the sins we committed. And again, when I say we understand, this refers to all who come to Christ in saving faith. This is the theme of Isaiah 53. We read it earlier to start our service. He was pierced through, he was punished. Pains for our, their substitution for our, in the place of others, our transgressions. Don't make light of the word transgression. It means rebellion or crime, revolt. In this case, it's rebellion against God himself and his holiness. Just like in a court of law, this rebellion necessitated a just penalty punitive punishment. But the point of Isaiah 53 is that divine justice does not fall upon the deserving. No, this piercing punishment was experienced by a sinless substitute. Continuing the prophecy, the one who had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. There's no sin. He's sinless. He's blameless. And yet, verse 5 of Isaiah 53, he, not us, he, the sinless one, was crushed. Punitive word. Crushed, shattered, broken. Think of that forsaking darkness we looked at last week. God is there. The Father is there. He is the one doing the crushing So we're told in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to crush his son, his servant. But again, who is this substitute for us? Verse five, he is the one who dies for in the place of our iniquities, our perverseness, 
our bentness toward evil, the chastening, another word for punishment, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. Verse six adds, Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Absolutely essential. Must be a substitute. If we are going to be welcomed into the presence of the Father, our sin must be taken away from us and put on someone else. Now, why is this the case? Why? Because Ecclesiastes 7 is true. There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So surprise, you're a sinner, okay? There's no one who continually does good. We all stand guilty before God. They're all in need of a perfect substitute. You might think, well, I'm doing okay. Almost there, James 2, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, one, he has become guilty of all. And it's because we do stand guilty before God, we are deserving of God's punitive penalty. We are deserving of his crushing hands, his forsaking work. This punishment is described in Romans 2 as wrath. It's holy wrath, Romans 2, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. This speaks of every person who does not come to Christ in saving faith. This was us, the moment we entered into this world. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. This is fury. This is coming rage for yourself in the day of wrath and righteous judgment of God. That's the warning. This is all punitive penal punishment penalty language. And yet the great promise of Isaiah 53, the great accomplishment on the cross is that when Christ is pierced and he is crushed and he is punished, it is for the sake of others. Specifically those who come to him in saving faith. Our sin becomes his and thus God's punishment and wrath and righteous judgment that should be ours, that falls upon the son, the servant. Again, we ask the question why is because God cannot turn a blind eye to sin, sin of any kind. He cannot simply wink at it. He cannot let it go. He cannot brush it under the carpets. He cannot stay holy, stay just. If he pretends sin never happened. Exodus 34, another warning. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Punishment must fall. If God is going to remain holy, if he's going to remain God, punishment for sin must fall. Thus he must unleash his glorious wrath 
and his wrath is glorious. He is not ashamed of wrath. He must unleash this wrath against each and every sin committed. Every sin will be punished. It will either fall upon the unrepentant sinner for all of eternity in hell, glorious wrath forever, or it will fall upon a substitute, namely his son in grace, the one who will stand in the sinner's stead. So this is the first accomplishment. When Jesus says it is finished, penal substitution has been made. It has been offered. Our sins transferred to him, God's wrath poured out on him instead of us. That's the start. We're gonna build on it. Notice accomplishment number two. Accomplishment number two. Why does Jesus cry out, it is finished? Because Jesus accomplished propitiation for our sins. He accomplished propitiation for our sins. Now, I understand propitiation is not a word that you've used in the last week or the last year. And yet, as we'll see, this is a description, and again, I'll add the term glorious, a glorious description of the saving work Christ accomplished on his cross. Propitiation. Listen to Romans 3. As Christ hung on the cross, God, verse 25, was displaying publicly, making it known throughout the world that propitiation is in his blood, Christ's blood, his death. Hebrews 2, Christ made propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 4, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And what is the height of this love? To what depth does the Father love his people? Answer, to the degree that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is a word that we must know and give praise to God for. So what does it mean? It means appeasement. It means satisfaction. It refers to a turning away of God's wrath against the sinner. This is a necessary accomplishment, propitiation. This is necessary because if, let's relate it back to penal substitution, if that substitution Christ endured for us is going to have any effect on us, then Christ must endure the full measure of God's wrath, not just some of it. The full measure of wrath. So that's propitiation. It's drinking the full cup of God's anger against sin for his people. Propitiation is Christ satisfying every bit of God's holy justice against our sin. It is Christ exhausting God's righteous fury in our place. It is Christ averting God's anger completely, completely. 
he leaves after the cross, he leaves no remaining wrath lingering out there against us. There's no remaining wrath. This is why we're told that the father, once we are his, he does not pour out wrath upon us. He'll discipline us, but discipline is different than punishment. There's no remaining wrath, so that wrath then can be replaced with mercy. And his anger replaced with peace. His judgment replaced with blessing, hell replaced with heaven. And indeed, propitiation is what Christ achieved when those three hours of darkness, all symbolic of wrath, forsaking, anger, those three hours of darkness engulfed him. Again, think back to everything we saw last week. Christ was absorbing in full his father's anger. This is one reason Christ needed to be both tr truly man and truly God. No one less than God could accomplish this wrath-averting work. No one less than God. Christ needed to be truly man so he could truly stand in our place. He would be our substitute. Man is the substitute for man. But he also needed to be truly God so that he could satisfy God's infinite anger against sin, something no mere man can do. Why is hell eternal? Why is hell, the wrath of God, eternal? It is because mere man can never extinguish infinite wrath. There's always more to be poured out. That's the infinite glory of, of God. Only God can propitiate God's holy anger. One theologian put it this way, one man could not endure the eternal hell that wicked man deserved. But Jesus was not a mere man. He was the God-man with infinite capacity to suffer eternal hell in minutes because of his eternal divine nature, character, and attributes. And he does this, I'll add, for us because of his human nature and body. He substitutes us, but he propitiates, averts, exhausts his father's anger because he is truly God. But in the words of another theologian, every ounce of wrath that the elect sinner deserved, all the wrath that God would have exercised on the sinner in the eternal torments of hell was poured out fully on our substitute. And just let it sink in. We might take this for granted. We might move on from it. But every ounce of eternal Hell falls upon him, our substitute, in those three terrible hours on Calvary. Because of this, there is no longer any wrath left for Christ's people. Praise the Lord. God is propitious toward them, for their sin has been paid for, and we can add in full mission accomplished. 
Now we get a wonderful picture of Christ's penal, propitiating, substitutionary sacrifice. If we turn to the Old Testament and we think of the day atonement ceremony in Leviticus 16. You don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. But the day of atonement ceremony, there's two animals involved. That's key, not one, but two. Each animal representing the accomplishment of Christ's sacrifice. The first animal is a goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. And the goat is slaughtered. By the way, that's the same word used in Revelation 5 of the the slain lamb. He is slaughtered. That's the penal substitution of Christ's work. Slaughtered, penalty, that sacrifice goat, its blood is then brought inside the veil to the altar of God. It is then sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's a picture of propitiation. So God's wrath is being averted. Through sacrifice, mercy can be bestowed. And yet there's a second animal involved in the ceremony. That's the scapegoat. Listen to Leviticus 16.21. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. It's a picture of substitution. Transference. And notice it's all our sins. Notice the emphasis, all the iniquities, all the transgressions, all their sins, same descriptions in Isaiah 53, pierced through for our iniquities, crushed for our transgressions. All of them transferred, none are left out. Again, propitiation. This is what the Father did to Christ on the cross. The Father transfers our sins to the Son of his love. We're told that in 2 Corinthians 5. The Father made him, his Son, the Father made him who knew no sin, the sinless, blameless, unblemished Lamb, he made him to be sin on our behalf. It's the transference of our sin to the son of his love. He becomes the son of his anger. So we're told in 1 Peter 2 that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, transference. And then back to the imagery, once those sins are transferred, Aaron sent the animal away into the wilderness. Animals banished from the presence of the Lord. Well, indeed, this is what the father did to his son. The father casts the son into outer darkness, brings the wrath upon him. The picture is this, forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sin, acceptance by God necessitates not only a substitute upon whom our sins are transferred, and not only a sacrifice, who is slaughtered. But our forgiveness, our acceptance necessitates propitiation. 
someone who can drink every drop of God's anger against his people. Whose blood, whose death can be sprinkled on the mercy seat, averting wrath and bestowing blessing. And the New Testament is clear, only the death of the sinless God-man can accomplish that work. Yes, there is wrath, but this is how loving the Father is toward us. Back to 1 John 4, he loved us, he loved us to the degree of sending his son to be that propitiating sacrifice. There's the love of God for us. It is in Christ's propitiating accomplishment where we find our eternal hope. No more wrath can fall on us ever. That's why Paul can assure us that there is now, now, wrath has been exhausted by the son. There is now no condemnation There's no future judgment we need to be fearful of. There's no threat of a guilty verdict issued on us. All that danger of our sin, all of that danger of our sin was sent away into the wilderness, was transferred to Christ. It will never return to us. We have that propitiation It is true for those who are in Christ. I've come to Christ in saving faith and we are clothed with the righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus. When Jesus says, it is finished, loud voice, he is crying out, I have exhausted my father's wrath. Accomplishment number three. Accomplishment number three, Jesus accomplished redemption from sin's slavery. Redemption from sin's slavery. From the language of a courtroom where Christ removes the guilt and penalty of our sin, in the language of a prison where Christ satisfies the Father's just punishment because of our sin, we now come to the slave market. That's the imagery, the slave market, where Christ, through his cross, shatters now the chains of our sin. That's what the word redeem means here, to be purchased from the slave market of sin. Why is there none who do good? It's because we are all slaves to sin when we enter this world. Listen to Ephesians 1 and the praise offered. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. How? Through his blood. So notice the link. Through his cross. 1 Corinthians 1, by his doing, This is the Father's work. He chose us. This is the love of the Father to send the sacrifice. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You're safe in him. Why? Because he is the one who became to us redemption. Colossians 1, Paul brings some application here. 
says, despite the circumstances of life, we can always, if we are Christ, we can always joyously give thanks to the Father. Why? Because of verse 14, because for all who are in his beloved Son, we have redemption. We're united to the Son of God's love, the Son that became the Son of his wrath, and yet now we have redemption through that Sacrifice. This is an accomplishment we all needed. Before Christ, Romans 6 tells us that we were slaves of sin. I know you thought you were doing pretty well. I know that. But we were slaves of sin. That's our condition. Every one of us bound by sin's chains, held captive by Satan's authority. And even worse, we were helpless. We were powerless to release ourselves from any of it. We are in the domain of darkness. And yet Christ died as the ransoming price, the price to release us. That's what Jesus said. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom, to give him his life as the price of redemption for many. Christ did not make this payment to Satan. He made this payment to God. And through that ransoming death, Paul continues, the chains of sin that held us were shattered. And we became obedient from the heart. Our heart was changed. We were freed from sin. Recognize that we have been freed from sin. Grasp that implication here. Because of Christ's death, sin holds no power over us. We have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Now we still have the flesh, we're still fallen. There will always be sin, but there's always a way of escape. That's the promise. Why? Because we've been freed from sin, set free into a life of obedience. Again, why? Because Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, to break sin's shackles from every lawless deed. It's Titus 2. From every lawless deed, freed. It's great redemption, which is why it was a costly ransom. You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. No, we were redeemed with precious blood. Precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And it is that redemption from the power of sin we experience now because of the cross that will one day, one day become redemption from the presence of sin. Redeemed from the presence of sin, that is when the day of redemption finally comes and Christ removes us from this world, brings us into his presence. All of that linked to the cross, it is finished, the ransom price offered, redemption made. 
Finally, accomplishment number four. Accomplishment number four. It is finished. What does it mean? Jesus accomplished reconciliation with the Father. He accomplished reconciliation with the Father. Reconciliation meaning to bring together two persons after a time of hostility. It speaks of reunion, speaks of restoration of fellowship, enemies made friends. This is what we are told in Romans 5. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Enemies made friends. And understand it was not just us at war with God, but God at war with us. Colossians 1 becomes even more stark. Although you were formerly alienated, that was our condition, estranged, cut off, or banished from God's presence. Think of Adam and Eve. They're kicked out of the garden, the presence of God. We're alienated from him. We were hostile, it means hatred, hostile in mind. That's the core of our being. We hated God at our core. We maybe wanted the things of God or the blessings of God, but we didn't want God. We were engaged in evil deeds, wicked. Same word describes Satan, the evil one. We're sons of the wicked, evil one. It's no wonder Romans says, God was our enemy, makes sense. Verse 22, though, yet he, he did not condemn us. Instead, he restored us, yet he reconciled you, how? In Christ's fleshly body through death. He brought you to himself. Hostility toward God is now changed to a love for God. And hostility from God is now changed to an acceptance by God. We're giving a picture of this when God tore the veil in the temple. The moment Christ dies, that veil is torn. It was a picture of being separated from the holy of holies because of our sin, but now our sin has been paid by the cross. The veil is torn. We have access now to this God. First Peter 3 puts it this way, for Christ died for sins once for all. Once for all, the mercy seat has been covered with his blood, his sacrifice, the just for the unjust. He was blameless, our substitute, so that, here's why, so that he might bring us to God, reconcile us to God. So this is the height of Christ's saving work, the height of Christ's saving work. He brings us to God. John Piper, the teens had John Piper last week. You get John Piper now. John Piper puts it this way. What is the ultimate good in the good news? So how would you answer that? What is the ultimate good in the good news? 
It all ends in one thing, God himself. All the words of the gospel lead to him or they are not gospel. For example, salvation is not good news if it only saves from hell and not for God. Forgiveness is not good news if it only gives relief from guilt and doesn't open the way to God. Redemption is not good news if it only liberates us from the bondage but doesn't bring us to God. So the accomplishment on the cross must move into this accomplishment. He brings us to God. Access is opened. It all ties together. Because of our guilt, Christ was punished by God. Because of God's holiness, Christ propitiated every drop of God's wrath. Because of our bondage, Christ redeemed us from the slave market of sin. And yet all of it leads to this crowning accomplishment and the reconciliation of his people. We belong to God. You want an identity? You belong to God. And one day, we will actually experience his presence. Because God reconciled us to himself through Christ, how? Because the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Reconciliation necessitates that propitiation, the penal substitution, that sacrifice. I love this. So that we might become, so that we might be credited with the righteousness of God in Christ. Accepted because not only were our sins transferred to Christ, but Christ's very righteousness is transferred to us. Access opened. And thus we will one day be welcomed by God to himself in the same way he welcomes his very own son. There are certainly many other accomplishments we can highlight here. You could add to the list the disarming of Satan of any accusation he could ever bring against God's people. There's no accusation brought against us that sticks. You could look at the accomplishment of freeing us from the fear of death, the accomplishment of delivering us from the present evil age, the accomplishment of securing our entrance into glory. The list can go on and on. All of it, though, is wrapped up. All of it is wrapped up in those three words. Amazing, that victory cry, it is finished. I've accomplished all of that for my people. Mark Jones, his words are true. Here is the glory of our Savior. He ended his life with words simple enough for children to understand and profound enough that no one can ever fully understand them this side of eternity. It is finished. We sang it earlier, we sing of the mysteries of the cross, who can comprehend? And yet as J.C. Ryle reminds us that we might not understand Jesus' words fully, 
We rest our souls on a finished work if we rest them on the work of Jesus Christ the Lord. We need not fear that either sin or Satan or law shall condemn us at that last day. We may lean back on the thought that we have a savior who has done all, paid all, accomplished all, performed performed all that is necessary for our salvation. When we look at our own works, we may well be ashamed of their imperfections. But when we look at the finished work of Christ, we may feel peace. We are complete in him if we believe. Next week, we will look at the application of Christ's cross. How do we take this and apply it to us? But one application this morning is this. It is finished is only for those who come to Christ in saving faith. Is that you? Have you seen your sinfulness in need of a sacrifice? Have you recognized the holiness of your God that you have indeed failed him? Have you bowed before Christ resting only on his, his ransom for your sin? Father, we thank you for those words, it is finished. We thank you that Christ did not say, I am finished. He will resurrect from the dead. But your plan, all that was required of him for us, done in full, that is grace upon grace. It shows the extent of your love for your people. May we not take that for granted. May we not just simply bypass the cross. We've heard the story often. But let us feel it, feel the weight of it. May we worship you because we have a savior that loved us to the very end and gave us everything we needed to come to you. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.